Hello, my name is Matthew Pendergast. I'm curator at Castlefield Gallery in Manchester, and I'm joined online here by Nicola Ellis. Um, Nick, are you are you at the factory today? Yes. You are. You are at the factory today. Oh, fantastic. Yes. Um, I can't see Nick, uh, but I can hear her, um, and we're we're just going to talk a little bit about Nick's work, her recent residency, what well, ongoing residency, and the exhibition that's coming up at Castlefield Gallery, uh, which has been postponed. It was supposed to open. Um, this July 2nd, but it will happen now, uh, March 2021, due to obvious reasons. Um, I'm just going to start by saying a little bit about our history with Nick. Um, I and the gallery have known Nick for some time. Um, yeah, make me feel old. Go on. 10 years. <laughs> um, I think your, your first exhibition if I've got this right first time you showed work at Castlefield Gallery was uh, in the very first launch pad uh, meanwhile this with mm -hmm. Nina Chua, Tiago, Duarte, Nick, uh, you that's you, Shona Harrison and Anna Rosa Hopkins. Um, <laughs> they were... Sorry what were you saying then? I mean, that's us guilty as charged. That's the crew that's the crew right you, you all studied together on the MA at Manchester School of Art right? We did. We were that was maybe group. just after you'd graduated? Yeah, I think it was like maybe six months after or something. I don't know, within a year anyway. Uh, and then about a year later, uh, you were in a head-to-head -head with Aura Sats, which was the first exhibition I really worked on at Castlefield Gallery. Um, and then, you know, in between then, we've, we've, you know, kept a close eye on you. I think we've taken, taken your work to some uh, to Manchester Contemporary. Uh, in 2018, we... And you and several other artists were part of a, a project where we showed some work by artists from Prague. We also took your work over to Doc's Centre for Contemporary Art. And uh, we might come back to that a little more later. Then just last year, Casper Gallery celebrated its 35th anniversary and you were part of our exhibition, No Particular Place to Go, 35 Years of Sculpture at Castlefield Gallery, uh, alongside people like uh, Sir Anthony Caro uh, and Henry Moore and uh, Manchester's famous James Ackley. Um, then just, yeah, just last year as well, um, God, so many things happened last year <laughs> that aren't happening this year. Um, last year as well, uh, we managed to sell a piece of your work to, um, well, it's gone into the collection of Manchester City Art Gallery through the Manchester Contemporary Art Fund, uh, Dead Powder Series Yellow is mm -hmm. the title of the piece, uh, which hopefully, will be on display at Manchester Art Gallery at some point in the near future. So mm -hmm. do look out for that. Um, so I thought what would be good to do next is if Nick, you could just give us a very brief uh, intro to your work as an artist in general, and then we'll get into some more specific things as and when. That's cool. Um, yeah. So, God, I mean, when you're faced with a question like that, you're like, Jesus, where do you start? Um, but I guess, I mean, I started to work with metal because it's always been about metal, you know, romance with steel. Um, started to work with steel in, I think it was 2012. So a little bit after that first show with Castlefield Gallery, I think. Um, and I'd been sort of taught to weld many, many years before this by my dad, who is a service engineer in the steel profiling industry. Um, and I was sort of, you know, welding seemed like a really sort of serious process, like entrenched in, you know, rules about how to do it right. 
Um, so I guess that meant there's, you know, probably a fair bit of scope to do it wrong in inverted commas. So, um, you know, there's potential for some kind of fabrication mischief going on. Um, and I think I look back now and think, you know, the welding and other kind of fabrication processes were sort of tied up with an identity I could relate to, I guess, like the maker or the fixer. Um, because that was just sort of a major part of my life growing up, I guess. Like even now, if I go back home to my parents' house, there's like, you know, it's always conversation about what home improvements are underway and, you know, what machines my dad fixed that week. Um, so it's in my blood really, but there's, you know, there's always something being made or in progress. Um, and also, you know, I've started to work with metal because I just didn't have any money after graduating, <laughs> which I think is like fairly usual for many people. Um, so I thought, you know, I might be able to acquire some scrap materials from the factories my dad visited for work um, to start me off. So from that sort of in short, um, the work shifted from the disruption of, you know, tradition, the tradition of welding essentially, um, by using it as like a sculptural material in its own right. Um, and from that to sort of using larger and larger bits of scrap um, that I, I either loaned or was given from places of industry um, to make larger sort of site responsive installations. Um, and again, that was the site responsiveness was sort of partly because of some kind of limitation. Mm. Um, you know, I was, I was interested in the properties of sheet steel and I wanted to work with it on a, on a larger scale than the studio would allow basically. Yeah. Um, so the work had to be site responsive. Um, you know, the material that I got was loaned from industry or sometimes, you know, I'd, I'd get, I'd turn up to a place, say, please can I have some of this stuff for me, Skip? Um, and I essentially wouldn't know what was going to be in there at the time. Um, so I wouldn't necessarily know what the work would be made out, made out of. Um, and then I'd have to pick it up, take it directly to the gallery space. And then the work sort of had to happen then. Um, which is quite an exciting way to work. <laughs> well, that's one way to describe it. Um, and the material then sort of went either back to the factory after the exhibition or, um, you know, if it was loaned to me or if it, if, um, it had been gifted to me, I would sort of find somewhere to store it. Um, or alternatively, it would be like cashed in for scrap. Um, mm. So, you know, it's sort of creating this additional kind of economy, I guess, in the materials lifespan and in my work. Um, you know, it was sort of lifted out of its expected series of events um, to temporarily become art. And then it either was returned, you know, rejoined its natural recycling process, if you will, or cashed in and paid for other sort of art related activity. Um, I, was, I was thinking about that a little bit last night and I was, I think he was just re realizing how how many of your recent works are called dead, <laughs> dead powder <laughs> series, which is is just the language of the factory, which you know, that's, what, that's what the material is called in the factory. Once it's used, it's dead, it's dead powder paint. And we'll, we'll we'll come to that in more detail in a minute. But yeah. I was thinking a little bit about this kind of the way you are prolonging the life cycle of these materials, and it, mm -hmm. it made me think. I don't know, maybe I'm going a little too far, but it made me think of. Uh, like the way Slavoj Zizek talks about the Freudian death drive, that mm. like, it's kind of a desire to push beyond nature and to like mm -hmm. keep living after you're dead. And mm -hmm. like Zizek talks a lot about like zombies. That's the way this sort of desire manifests in 
popular mm-hmm. cultures, these kind of zombie figures trying to keep living after death, but they don't live. They're kind of undead, the, you know, the unliving things. And mm-hmm. like this material, you sort of, you, you drag it out of one, one life world where it's had a life cycle, where it's had a life in industry, in factories. And then you kind of like reanimate it like some kind of Frankenstein in, a, in like a gallery environment temporarily sometimes you know like uh, the bride of frankenstein or, or maybe for a bit longer um but I've yeah never, maybe there's a, there's a step that comes after that you know i've never uh, thought about it as like reanimation that is like freaking me out <laughs> but yeah kind of and i think there's that sort of i don't know how to describe evidence of movement you know is still kind of in in the matter especially the more recent stuff from Rizzardon you know, there's this idea of pushing the material onto surfaces until it physically resists and fl- and tries to get off, <laughs> you know, tries to leave um, the surface. And all that sort of movement is becomes solid because it's, you know, baked in the oven, basically. So, yeah, I can, I can get that. I can see where you're coming from there. <laughs> so maybe we should talk a bit about the factory because I think, um, I mean, that's where you are right now. You're there now. Yeah. And, and a lot of your recent work, is is related to this place so maybe you could tell us a little bit about Ritherden. i always feel like i'm saying it wrong Ritherden is that yeah. how you say it Ritherden? Ritherden. Um, yeah. and uh yeah tell us a little bit about that and the whole residency and everything that you've been doing there okay cool so well originally um i was introduced to Ritherden and co limited if you're formal um and they are like a, a family-owned uh, manufacturer of steel enclosures so you know, metal boxes that contain various things, street-side electricals, uh, meter box covers, uh, fireproof, that sort of thing. When I explain it to people, I tend to tell them uh, that it's where the internet lives. They make <laughs> little green boxes. The little boxes, where yeah. Where the yeah. mines live. <laughs> some of the internet would have to be really big because some of the stuff they make here is quite large. But Oh, yeah. Um, well. well, kind of anyway. But yeah, and that, you know, Ritherden have been going for 125 years. So there's like quite a wealth of history there. Yeah. Um, but I was introduced to them um, for the first time in like February 2018 by Deco Public, who um, is an organization that sort of co-commissions the art in manufacturing residencies um, that happen in, uh, take, take parts sort of in Blackburn and Lancashire surrounding. Um, uh, for the purpose of producing a commission to then be shown at the National Festival of Macon, again, which usually happens every year, apart from this year. Nice one, COVID. Yeah. Um, so I, I did an art in manufacturing residency, basically, in 2018. Um, and as that ended, I sort of thought, oh, you know, my presence here was, was really well received, I felt anyway. Um, and there was the potential for me to, like, you know, continue making work. Uh, so... I just asked the managing director, Ben Witherden, um, still managing director now, if if I could come back for like a period of two years, if I could find the funding. And he said yes, so, you know, positive. Um, and I was fortunate enough to be granted a, a national lottery project grant for what I then turned, returned to Witherden, because obviously I'd already been there. Um, and that started in February 2019 um, to stretch over a two year period. Um, so regarding like the structure of the project, I mean, there is a structure of course, but it's sort of ever like evolving constantly over time. Um, but my original kind of, you know, stated in inverted commas aim was, um, 
I suppose to use the National Festival of Making Work as a starting point and um, to like as a way to plug right back into the systems. But it wasn't, you know, it wasn't just all about coming back here to, to bang a load of work out. Um, yeah. Although actually I have made a lot of work anyway. But yeah. like the point was to, to spend some time on site here to to properly try and understand the ecosystem of the factory and the dividend yeah. you know, business overall. Um, and Withered and didn't then and still don't now like have any formal or like agreed expectations of me in terms of output. Um, so that's like what I would consider like an open brief situation. Um, but maybe I'll talk a, a bit more about that later on in, in relation to the artist placement group. But... Yeah, yeah, that'll come up. Yeah. I mean, I suppose one thing to, to continue what you're saying there is Mm. You 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 set up some kind of rules of engagement, didn't you? When you when you came back mm -hmm. um, about how you know, like things like you know, paying for materials and stuff would mm -hmm. you dealt with? Maybe you could say a little bit about that. Um. Yeah, and I think you know, there's not sort of masses masses of rules. Yeah. Um, because it's sort of it's it's an ever changing process, so there has to be like massive flexibility, really. Um, but I do love a parameter. Yeah, but, yeah. So, I suppose some some rules kind of open up freedom as well. In a yeah, way. give give rise to creativity and all that. Um, and you know, just as like a, an overall reflection, that's kind of exactly what's happening in the placement. There are like efficient digital systems and like physical procedures in place, and I'm learning about those and you know, therefore how to navigate them in different ways and you know, other than what the fact in the factory norms. Um, so broadly speaking, like my intention is to get, you know, something else to happen. Um, but anyway, sorry, I digress. Um, yeah, so I think there's, there's maybe one or two sort of hard and fast rules. Like I don't, I don't pay for scrap for testing works, but I do pay for the new materials that I use here. Um, although Ben has sort of kindly offered to, don to, you know, donate some to the cause, which is very kind, but um, I just think there are like there are so many things to consider already in relation to like what my role is in the factory and what that is defined by um, that I try to keep at least that one thing very straightforward like and in a way I think it's you know it, by just at least paying my way for at least some things um, it sort of retains my status as like an external or semi autonomous entity for want of a better description um, at least if I'm paying for that but I mean, I do obviously benefit from withered and staff time um, and I like, can and do regularly ask for help uh, or input. Um, and also, you know, I'm aware that making art is not the factory's priority. But then no. again, then again, like there've maybe been like one or two instances I can think of which I've actually had to, you know, book work in to be done at a later date. Mm. Um, and to be honest, like it's actually sometimes the reverse. Like it's it's possible to get things done much earlier than I'm actually ready for, <laughs> um, and that's interesting in itself. Like you know, learning how to make work in an environment that is just totally set up for efficient operation, um, and that's like full of people who who also know, you know, how to work skillfully and quickly. Sorry, allowing to my everything operates at like a totally different speed here um yeah. especially totally different to working in a studio or or pretty much anything that goes on outside of the factory walls to be honest um it's just a different pace of making um and it's it's sort of great to be hopping back and forth over that factory entrance because 
I don't know, I, I just get a totally new perspective on both like the art and the manufacturing environments from the other side, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that's one of the things that really interests us about, about this project, connecting these different worlds. And we'll maybe come back to that a bit more in a minute. I mean, one thing um, about the way the factory functions that I was really interested in that you were telling me about, which is perhaps like, for some people just, it's kind of like obvious, but um, this, well, the, the lean manufacturing philosophy and, mm -hmm. um, and 5X, maybe you mm -hmm. could say a little bit about that. Yeah, um, so there's quite a lot of sort of integrated and overlapping systems that are you know, managing all sorts of data, tracking products, um, and, and basically like shaping the culture of making here. Um, and 5S is a, a sort of methodology that's in place in every workspace in the Rhythm Factory and the offices. Um, and that's you know for the purpose of maintaining safety, efficiency, um, to reduce waste. Um, and it was originally developed in Japan as part of the Toyota production system. Um, and the five, I'll, I'll sort of briefly go through the five steps, but I'll, I'll, I won't attempt the Japanese in case I've looked to the language. But um, so, so number one is sort, which is you know sort through all the items in an area and remove anything unnecessary. Um, number two is set or like set in order. So the remaining items should be put in their like optimal place for use. Uh, number three is shine. So everything should be um, inspected and cleaned um, in, the, in that workspace. Uh, number four is standardized. So the process of, you know, standardizing sort, set and shine the previous three steps. Um, to ensure they happen as, as frequently as necessary. Um, and number five, the final one is sustain. So um, basically the previous four points should, should become part of working practice rather than like individual or separate instructions to be followed. Um, so 5S kind of shapes you know, the practicalities of everyday, of everyday operation, sorry, competition, mm. um, in a way that then enables lean production or lean manufacturing. Um, so lean is a philosophy essentially so you know the, the situation in which it can be applied to is flexible it, it can be many things but the, the kind of underlying principles remain the same um, which are you know the elimination of anything that doesn't add value and the elimination of waste from the business um, and it is possible to see like examples of that in all departments um, for example, there's like, you know, five or 10 minute meetings every morning in every department here um, to ensure clear communication. Um, and another one would be, you know, it's, it's everyone's aim to find one health and safety, like observation that's termed to write up every week. Um, and that's not like a negative thing. It's not like, so somebody gets it in the neck, do you know what I mean? It's yeah. um, a kind of like ongoing effort to be constantly improving the working environment. Um, so, so yeah, things like that, like how, you know, 5S and Lean is sort of physically manifested in the Ritherden factories is like a major part of what I'm interested in, I guess. It's just logistics. I love logistics, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah, I hope a bit rubs off on, on, uh, on me and the gallery. <laughs> hey, did you see, just one more because this is like my favourite one. Did you see when you came in um, to visit, there's like what they call a visual standard in each room? Mm, yes. So, yeah. Yeah. 
which is essentially like a picture on the wall in each room showing exactly how the room should look when you enter and leave it. So it's like a photograph of the room you're in showing it in pre like pristine and clean condition. And that's like the visual standard to be adhered to. And it really does work. Like I'm looking yeah. at it now in the CAD office and it looks like that. <laughs> so it's so cool. Yeah, I mean, I've seen some things like that in other workplaces, but just not not on the, the level that they are at Ritherden, you know, like they're in, like you said, they're all over and they yeah. match, the, the reality and the picture match. Normally yeah. you walk into like a, you know, a technician's cupboard in a in the back of a, an art gallery. And <laughs> there's, a, there's an old A4 yeah. printout on the wall, you know, that's full of bits and then just like buckets and tools and uh, screws yeah, all over yeah. the place. Yeah. Um, and you know when you're in those situations you know it's it's hard to adhere to something but actually here it's just part of the culture well that's yeah. why that the, the fifth 5s is so important to like sustain it and keep it mm -hmm. keep, keep, mm -hmm. keep it up that's 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 the kind of the hardest one mm -hmm. okay so maybe maybe um moving moving on a little bit i suppose like um another uh, critical theory reference that kind of comes up I suppose quite immediately when you start to look at your work you know working with machinery and working with metal and producing things and production lines and stuff like that you know I imagine a lot of people especially if they've done an undergraduate you know art degree will think of Walter Benjamin and Art on the Edge of Mechanical Reproduction um, I think that's the, that's the right title right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Something like that. Um, we know and, what you mean. <laughs> and uh, I remember, uh, you know, we talked briefly about this, maybe when we were at the factory a while ago, and you were very clear that, um, you know, the first bit of his essay where he talks about aura and the loss of aura in the age of reproduction mm -hmm. is something that, that you feel is perhaps not as simple a, as a case as maybe Benjamin thinks. And mm -hmm. I mean, I, I like the guy and I'm sure you two would have a lot to think about but I think I kind of agree with you you know that that uh, you know all of these things that have been made that come out each one has its its own aura so maybe you could say a little bit about that first I don't know yeah and I think I you know I have been sort of slowly digesting some philosophy in you know that in some way relates to what I'm doing and I do mean slowly because there's been quite a lot of information to get my head around already um you know, everything that goes on here, it's it's just a massive job to try and understand all the systems in place. But but it has been useful as like points of reference, maybe, or, you know, yeah, points of references to help me unpick the ecosystem or like look beyond the physical actions, I guess. So, you know, I can talk a bit about the thinking, but I'm not sure I've got like an actual answer for you. But like, you know, if the question is, do I think Ritherden products have aura? And I guess, you know, if aura is, um, you know, directly linked to originality, I guess, or authenticity, like, do I think each box or, you know, individual product made here is different to all the others that have come before it? Like, yes, I know it is. Um, and, and the people who work at Ritherden agree because I, you know, I know this because I've asked them. Um, but maybe that's like, you know, it's our insider's perspective, I guess. And we are sent like hypersensitive to sort of minute differences possible in the process of making each product um you know for example the way the thickness of steel is constantly fluctuating a tiny bit and then 
you know, the way the machines as a result of this will sort of bend it ever so slightly differently. And, you know, that's like a big deal here, but maybe not so much to the outside world that don't have the insight. But, but also, you know, each product is welded, it's dressed, it's handled through the machines by people. Um, and evidence of, of the individual sort of always comes through in, I mean, how to describe, I guess, like the visual language of, of making those products. So none really are the same. Um, now, I'm not sure like if the lads on the factory floor would describe what they're doing as self-expression exactly. But, you know, if all it is to do with like skilled production, like cult following and that sort of like cultness comes from tradition, then I don't know, maybe it's like acceptable to reference the tradition of manufacturing processes. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but then again, on the flip side, do I think that, you know, people value the products that's made here like art, you know, cult art objects outside the factory? Probably not. I think what they want is like a well-produced item that's going to like do its job yeah. in a long time. So it's, you know, maybe it's a question of perspective, really. Yeah. Sure you answered your question. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 that was, that was, I mean, whether it answers a question or not, I don't know. I mean, I think, I think it complicates things and I think that's probably the best thing to do with, <laughs> for now. I think they're all, they're all, these are just ways of thinking about what you're doing and, um, mm -hmm. And I, I suppose the other, the, the second part of, of, uh, of Benjamin's essay is is to kind of suggest that the role of art has changed one mm. way or another. I think we can maybe agree with him that it, that it has, you know, and especially since, you know, like in the 30s when he was writing the essay, I think. Um, and I suppose the second part of the essay is, you know, he, he's saying that art now has a, has a role, a duty to be political. Mm -hmm. so my, so my next question to you is, is whether you agree with that side of it you know do you think um or should or shouldn't be or can or can't be political mm -hmm. and perhaps if we can go that far in what way is your work political mm -hmm. well i think um i want to say of course is the answer but i think it's slightly more complicated than that mm. i mean you know art is there is the result of a process, a process which is inherently political, I think. You know, I mean, I've just been banging on about making art as like a way to investigate and navigate systems for, I don't know, however long we've been talking now. But, you know, so I do believe that it is inherently political. Um, but if you're talking about, you know, art making being a form of politics with a capital P, which I suspect you might be, um, considering, you know, the current global events and the good work of the Black Lives Matter movement, um, I don't think anybody needs my endorsement to be cracking on with that. Like, <laughs> you know, that good work is happening now and artists are part of that. Um, but yeah. I think, yeah, like art, art making is, it's inherently investigative in nature, I think. And therefore it is, you know, it's a very efficient way to question systems of power. Yeah. Um, and, you know, no system is above being questioned, basically. So. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Good answer. <laughs> Good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um and you know the, the last the last uh guy that pops up on our uh our kind of theory references is Deleuze and I, 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 I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not massive uh Deleuze scholar but Gilles Deleuze you know he one of the things when I think about this aura and think about things being made in the factory and trying to think of different ways of thinking about about that one of the things that came to my mind was um difference and repetition and, and the way Deleuze talks about that and what kind of struck me when I started to think about that was how 
you know, Deleuze also and, and Gilles Guitari also talk about, um, Felix Guitari talk together about um, rhizomes and this mm -hmm. kind of like these complex systems, mm -hmm. top and no bottom. And, and maybe in a way, like the way this, this lean manufacturing philosophy and 5S, and, and particularly the way, like I really like the way people are expected and required almost to, to find problems, you know, and mm -hmm. health and safety problems, you know, like you really generally, you know, and I've worked in a few different places in different departments and often, you know, you put health and safety stuff in place and then people obey it and you don't really want people to complain about it. But yeah. The yeah. bravery, you know, the bravery to it, to like demand that people find health and safety problems on a weekly basis I think is a really like inspiring thing <laughs> it yeah. sounds really boring but it, I think it really is and um you know I think that's the way in which you know and the people at Rutherford know this they know this they know that this is what's needed for them to grow I mean they've been going for how long have they been going for 100 and 125 years 25 year. years you know and for Deleuze, repetition, you know, difference needs repetition, I suppose. Like, mm -hmm. repetition is a part, and you can't have pure repetition. Everything happens again and again and again, but every time it's different, and that's how things kind of, like, grow, and they're always becoming, you know, that's the big kind of word that Deleuze and Katara uses, things are always becoming. And I think, like, learning about Rhythmden, it, it's a place that knows that. It knows that it's becoming. It's not a single finished thing. And even though, like, they're not, like, ripping the machines out and changing what their products they do this they're doing the same you know it seems very repetitious on the on a surface level but actually it's always becoming i suppose that that that's the point um yes sorry <laughs> <laughs> talk about that then yeah <laughs> um yeah no i agree and i mean just to sort of backtrack something you would saying at the start of that is like i was like oh i don't i don't think like demanding that that people find health and safety observations is like the right way to think about it because when something is in just is part of the working culture there is no demanding that has to happen do you know what I yeah. mean it's, yeah. it's just part of that it's that fat, like number five on 5s yeah um, and it's sort of I do feel that it is generally agreed with that it just keeps everybody safe and like the factory is clean as hell like you know that don't you because you've mm. been here um but yeah so you know after that, there's sort of, there is always constant ongoing like measurement of production over time, like long, long periods of time. Um, and it is, you know, it is for the purpose of identifying things that can be changed for the better um, yeah. because, because the company wants to carry on going for another 125 years and yeah. you know, all those sorts of things. Um, but, you know, also maybe to reduce human labor or, you know, for other ways to improve the working environment, as we've been saying. Um, the official phrase is like, don't work harder, work smarter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, like, rather than we talk about this, like, the fact that it's like this huge place, I feel like it comes across as this enormous factory, but actually, including, you know, admin and office staff, Ritherden has like a workforce of 38 people, um, 39 if you include me, which I am on the roster. Um, and, you know, pr but pretty much everyone is like multi skilled. Um, so yeah, like fabricators are carrying out like similar actions in each workstation or department or whatever, but they're also moving between those workstations. So, you know, it's not just about knowing one process so well that it, it becomes possible to make, you know, suggestions about how to improve it or, or having some kind of data show that, but 
it's about like carrying that knowledge about um, other parts of the manufacturing processes into each individual stage, if that makes sense. Mm. Um, and it's it's that kind of like comprehensive knowledge that that joins all the processes up in some way through the people that work here. That's my perception of it. Um, and this is, you know, this is how the workplace becomes more efficient. Um, it looks inwards for improvements rather than like outwardly relying on like mass consumers and mm. like large economies of scale to keep the business viable. Mm. And I think, I mean, ultimately like that, that relates to, this is mega nerdy now, but you know, one of the issues with the mass production model, which was the sort of predecessor to lean, like the division of labor in manufacturing became in mass manufacturing became like super specialized to the point of like, you know, just singular actions. People were just, it's just singular actions in some cases and therefore like really monotonous. And I think, you know, in that situation, the, the potential for difference in the repetitive process or even like to have agency over your own working environment is, is like totally minimal, like minimized. Um, but I think in terms of, you know, some of the work I'm making here at the moment, it is the work is reflective of the culture of like constant evaluation and recording of data. Um, like some, you know, some of the parameters for the new works just simply is simply to present data in different ways that it, it currently exists, like maybe in the form of powder coating on panels or, you know, visualizing data in using flashing lights to identify rhythms. Um, that there are other kinds of understanding to be had um, from the systems in place. And, you know, maybe like, maybe first and foremost, that's, that's, you know, how the systems in the factory and the factory itself are perceived by the people in it. Like that's, that's where you start with that. I don't know if I answered your question again. But. <laughs> sure, but it, it, it's, it's very, it, I think you made some good points. And I, I think that leads nicely on to just asking maybe outright, like uh, what, I mean, maybe you've already said this really, but you know, what have you learned from the factory? And also maybe if it's possible to say, what do you think the, the factory might have learned from from you being there mm. okay again like massive massive question I think before I get into that I think this whole well from the, from the whole process of doing you know going so far in this project I just think one extremely important thing that I will try and carry with me forever <laughs> is that sometimes things just take a long time to understand and I think I've managed to do quite you know quite well in understanding everything that's going on here and plotting routes for work to be made but and I do have some understanding of some you know immediately some of the things that I've learned from being here but also there's like a lot of that is going to come out you know up to two you know years after this project is is when all of that's really 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 going to become apparent like the impact of me being here on the factory vice versa and then you know how that sort of contributed to wider discussion about you know how artists practice or where, where they make work but um so sorry I digress again but I think more than I'm just going to like widely generalize to say something because I know we don't have like masses of time but the spending time somewhere that you wouldn't normally is like a great way to gain some perspective on the other aspects of your life, which sounds like kind of ominous, but it is true. Um, 
you know, and it's not possible to rush things, even though I'm in a place that's like super um, efficient, it's possible to make other areas of your life efficient using examples from industry, for example. Um, but yeah, things should also be given a longer time than maybe, you know, ex external demands allow. Um, but as far as, as what Ritherden has learned from me, I 100% know the answer to that question by some people would be how to make a mess. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not going to say that. Um, it, they joke, but I'm not that messy. Um, and I do sort of hate to speak on other people's behalf, but I do think I'm probably safe in saying that maybe, you know, it, it's become apparent that what goes on at the factory on the day to day, which, you know, is something it's very easy to just, you know, you turn up, you work, you do the thing well, you go home. It's like a daily routine. But that is like deeply interesting to, to the outside world um, and maybe much more so than some of, you know, some people who work here might think or might have thought. Um, so yeah, I think that's my answer to that. <laughs> so you're saying that you 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 feel like that they they've benefited from having the experience of someone else's perspective on on that kind of otherwise perhaps unseen daily daily routines and and I would agree with you. Yeah, it is it is it is like. It is really interesting to see. Mm, I think so. And it, it's sort of, it's about representing the things that happen every day with a different kind of value, probably. And that's what I do a lot of. And that's yeah. what the work does a lot of, I think, of part of, you know, that's part of the function of the work. Mm. Um, and yeah, so I think, yeah, I think that's it. I think that's it. And plus there's also the, you know, the sort of physical things of, um, you know what happens when we just disrupt this process a little bit you know yeah. it's, it's great for it's great for both parties then to to really see what happens on the other side um and that sort of disruption to not just the process but like the the working day is is not to be underestimated i think yeah yeah because maybe you could give a little bit more of an example of you know because you you told me some things about um you know some of the actual works that you've been making where you've been um you know having to have like uh i'm not sure what the right word is like a, not a program but like a kind of a file like a, a you know you did the, the piece where it's like a, a portrait of the, the i always want to call it the trump machine the trump yes we can't we cannot confuse those two words in this climate like trump with a f <laughs> yeah um yeah so you mean just sort of the, the process of, of Renavigating that system. Yeah, because you, you know, like you, you had to have a lot of you had to work very closely with the people, both like operating the machines, but also in the office, kind of like doing the um, like the digital side side of it as well mm -hmm. to to create a new. Um, I, I'm not sure what the right word is, but the 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 sort of the information that goes into the machine, you know. Yeah, to, so we uh, would say the like the drawing, basically. Drawing the drawing. Yeah, yeah that's which it. Is a great it's a nice overlap of language, right? But um, yeah, so it's actually um, two people in the CAD office. I'm, they're not in today. I'm actually sat in Josh's desk, um, trying to keep cool with the fan. But yeah, we've been sort of passing, passing files back and forth for, for quite a bit of time now. But the, uh, my idea was that, you know, how can we get the Trump to, to 
again, how can something else happen? How can we dis disrupt the program of it, so to speak? Um, so I just asked the question, you know, can we put photo, you know, can we enter a photograph into the software? Um, it's called Radan, Radan software, um, that would then sort of make a drawing for the Trump to understand. Um, and the answer was yes. So there's been much sort of negotiation of how, how complicated this kind of image can be. Um, so Maybe I can you quickly just... explain for people that don't know what a trumpf machine is. Yeah, yeah, sorry. It's like... yeah. No, I just realised that I, you know, I can, I, you know, I have a picture of it in my mind, but it, it punches, it punches out shapes. Yeah, so it's, yeah, it's, actually, it's actually the first machine in the line of, you know, the process of manufacturing. And it's, it takes flat, the flat sheets of steel that come in, um, draws them down, puts, puts it onto the bed with this sort of sucker system, which is like really fascinating and good to listen to. Um, and then it, it punches out, according to the drawing it's got in its system at any one time, it literally punches out um, flat shapes that then go on to be bent and welded and ground and then, you know, become rhythm and products. Um, so it's that sort of initial punching out process. Um, so I took a series of photographs of the machine um, and we sort of had to reduce the amount of information in it to make it to make it possible for the machine to understand, you know, or even make the thing look a bit like the machine, you know, because um, photographs are very complicated, little bits of digital information. I know this now. Um, so it was just a case of reducing the information in the image down to almost the points of geometry. Um, and then Josh would upload it into Radan, it would be sort of traced by Radan, and that would be the drawing, and that would be then sent down to the Trump, and the Trump would punch that out. Um, and of course, this is like a totally alien thing to happen. <laughs> so we were kind of all stood there, you know, really excited, wondering what, what you know, if it's actually going to work or not. But um, then at the Trump end, um, Jack, who is the operator of the Trump machine, he he has, you know, excellent knowledge of how the machine works and, and sometimes you have to not manually override it, but, you know, manually control some of the functions. So the speed, for example, you know, he knows if it's using a particular type of die punch that it needs to go really slowly because there's chances of the material flicking up underneath or, or whatever, you know, we can sort of interpret this drawing basically and, and then, and manually alter the speed. So, um, yeah, so that's sort of one like one example, I guess, of of that sort of disruption and trying to get something else out of the machine, something else to happen. And, um, and the in I suppose in this kind of Deleuzean sense that that you you coming in as this external element, then you know it's not necessarily that you bring new knowledge in, but that your presence creates a situation in which new knowledge is kind of created through through the diff through the disruption of you of you being there yeah pretty much i mean there is there is um yeah no that, that's right I, I am more of a facilitator i think or yeah. like you know i as an external person i have an excuse to say why don't you know why don't we try it differently why don't we yeah which, which is of course a kind of knowledge and a, and a skill definitely yeah. But then yeah, the, it's a different skill though to, to yeah. you know to making it is like i want to say like it's it's about negotiating the, the systems in place like the politics and stuff but actually people here really want they're kind of interested in the work i think and they want to see what's going to happen so mm. as long as 
you know, like I said before, as long as there is space in the schedule, our space can be made because the Trump is on all the time. Um, it, you know, it's possible to do it and, and people are very flexible here. So, yeah. Maybe this is a good point to say if anyone wants to um, get a sense of what these machines look like and also sound like um, when we release this podcast, or well, I suppose if you're listening to it, it's already been released. Um, we're also putting on the webpage a photo essay, a digital publication with photographs taken by you yourself, Nicola Ellis, and then also you've collaborated with Manoli. I only know him as Manoli. What is he? Does he have a, a first or second name as well? <laughs> no, he's like Prince. No, just kidding. Um, yes, Manoli Moriarty. Fantastic, fantastic. <laughs> uh, so you two have worked together on a, a sound piece as well, so people will be able to, to listen to that if they like. But yeah, there's also loads of pictures that um, we're going to be sharing some on our Instagram, social media. You're really good at sharing images of what you're up to via your So if people want to follow uh, Nicola Ellis on Instagram, they can find you quite easily on the, uh, on Twitter um, and get a sense of this, this place. Um, and there might also in the future be an opportunity for people to visit the factory as well. I don't know how, how public that will be, but. Yeah, I mean, actually, on, aside from the sort of art business side, there is usually two, um, two opportunities in the year, which Witherden call like heritage open days. Okay. Um, and people can sort of book onto these and then come, you know, come and visit the factory. And I've actually been part of that last year, I think, or maybe the year before. I don't know. All time has now become one. But, you know, I've sort of got out bits of stuff from the Ritherden archive um, for people to look at as well. So, yeah, th there are opportunities to come, but maybe, you know, maybe it can be negotiated um, through Castlefield Gallery and then... Mm. Yeah, 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 definitely. Maybe I'm can... really, you know, I'm really keen, keen for people to visit if, as long as it's appropriate, like on site. Um, probably not now because of COVID, but, no, no. Um, you know, it's, as far as I'm concerned, you know, part of my job is to, is to bring the experience of the factory to other people, um, with, whether that's through the work or, you know, through open, you know, maybe make, doing some tours, that sort of thing. So it just makes like my projects much more, you know, more successful, the more that happens really. So, yeah. Cool. So, um, a, a slightly different, but related topic, um, I suppose like one question simply would be like who are your artist heroes but I also imagine that um, the artist placement group will, will get mentioned in specifically as well in relation to, to this project so I don't know if there's any artists in general whether you want to jump straight to artist placement group well I mean basically anyone who sort of cracks on and gets stuff done I think um, you know people who make things happen yeah. but in that spirit I will say Barbara Stevening um, yeah you know, the co-founder and director of the artist placement group. Mm. Um, and I, you know, I, I had the absolute privilege of meeting Barbara last year um, at the Incidental Units um, weekend event. I think it was called Incidental Futures at South London Gallery um, before she very sadly passed away recently. Yeah. Um, and Barbara got stuff done, man. You know, she was, she's well known for, you know, the phrase, just, just go out and bang on some doors. Um, but I had this really sort of lovely and bizarre moment where I did a sort of 10 minute intro about this, you know, the return to Ritherden project at, um, at this sort of weekend event at South London Gallery. And Barbara was there listening and I was like, oh, all I could think about inside was, oh my God, this is like, 
I'm talking about my artist placement to the woman who like invented artist placement. But I think I was coherent, so it was okay. Um, but also, I mean, in Could you general, say a little bit about um, what the artist placement group is in Boris and his work, just a general for people who might not have encountered them before? Yes, yes. So, um, I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot here, but as a, I'll try and do it justice in like a short summary. But um, I think the artist placement group, in its original form anyway, was active between, I think, 1966 and 19... 88 or 89 um, and they initiated and organized like placements for artists in places of industry or public institutions um, for example there was a placement in British Steel um, in the Scottish office you know the government department for the environment and ocean fleets was another one um, but the, the idea was to refocus art out of the gallery uh, into into other contexts um, and the APG kind of considered artists to be like an un underused public resource. Um, and I think that's actually, you know, that's the proper description of, of the language that they would use. Um, yeah. And believed like every workplace or organisation should, should have an artist involved in, in the decision making processes, which in turn would like, you know, benefit wider society. Um, and they're sort of famous for using the statement, context is half the work, which sort of acknowledges the shift from, you know, studio-based object making to artworks taking different forms or what, you know, basically whatever form necessary um, in response to um, the specific environment or conditions of the placement organization. Um, I'm trying to think now, this, this is testing me now, because I have actually, as part of this project, have been down to Tate and mm try and sponge in as much of the artist placement group archive as, as possible. Um, but the, the founding members were Barbara Stevenie, of course, John Latham, um, Anna Ridley, Barry Flanagan, David Hall, and I think, I think Jeffrey Shaw, maybe? Um, but the, there wasn't sort of like a, a formal system for membership. Um, and context is half the work.net is the place to go if you, you know, if anyone wants a bit more in-depth information. Um, but also, um, the, there's more information on the incidentalunit.org, incidentalunit.org, sorry, for um, information about the most like recent iteration of the artist placement group. Um, mm. And the incidental unit kind of shares information about the APG and its approaches um, and use that as like a reference point to continue discussion about the role and work of artists today. So they're, they're a good bunch. We, we sort of meet up and talk virtually now once a month, which is good. So. Yeah, I mean, I, I really, I think more and more, um, it would be really amazing to see more artists in different workplaces. I think it would be very good. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, if, if people are interested in this, you should also just check out the National Festival of Making because... Yeah, of course, um, yeah. The, you know, there are, I think it's like five or six artists they put in places of industry or manufacturing in Lancashire, and that's been going on for like four years now, I think. Um, so, you know, that's, that's a reasonable number. Like, Lancashire is still the hub of manufacturing in this country. You know, that's yeah. where it happens, so... Yeah. Yeah, it's good. It's where I was made. There you go. <laughs>
so um moving on from from kind of artists that have inspired you you've also um been increasingly i've noticed um been kind of collaborating with other people mm. uh, people that are working with different um materials different disciplines maybe people that aren't even really artists um mm. photographers um manoli we mentioned who works with sound um mm. And maybe yeah, it'd be interesting to to you talk a little bit about that. And also, like I, I I know that you've been kind of maybe like many people out there, many other artists, trying to make the most, you know, trying to put a positive spin on this lockdown, and mm-hmm. maybe learning some new skills, um, mm-hmm. most likely digital. Um, so maybe you can say a little bit about that. Yeah, um, I think I mean obviously the lockdown has been incredibly stressful in lots of ways for lots of different people. Um, but I think I've, I was fortunate enough to have amassed quite a lot of like digital material before the, before the lockdown happened, which I'm just like going to be eternally grateful for that sort of accidental thing because, you know, at, at least it meant I could carry on with some stuff at home um, and process all of that, I guess. So um, I had a lot of photographs ready for reviewing. Um, and I've, I've never done any photography before now, so I've had um, a little bit of input from people, you know, recommending what equipment to buy because, you know, how, how the heck do you know? <laughs> um, and having, you know, having a go, trying photography out for the first time in a factory for me has just been like an engineering nerd's dream. So um, I've also spent some time sort of refreshing my video editing skills. Um, I've been taking some video and preparing some of that material for an installation for the Castlefield show. So, yeah. you know, fingers crossed that all goes okay. There's still a bit to do yet. Um, and yeah, I decided that I'd do some painting based on the photographs that I'd taken of the factory, um, which has been the most enjoyable bit, I think. Mm. But um, I think I've described them in the, the sort of, what are we terming it? An e-book, an e-publication, a, a visual yeah, essay. A publication. In that anyway. Yeah. Um, as, as a way to like celebrate both the fixed and like the perambulating landmarks of, of the, the environment here. And um, so like, you know, the infrastructure, the, the welding bays and just stuff like, um, you know, the pump trucks, that sort of thing. Um, and I really do want to celebrate that because it's like, it's a little bit of nostalgia. I'll sort of flex for like, you know, well, well used um, machinery or tools and stuff. Um, or, in, you know, industrial green steps, but sort of, I don't know, recreating them in a, a clean space, I guess, is, is a way to take them out of that manufacturing context, um, or at least a version of them anyway, um, without, you know, you get to see them without the sort of overwhelming amount of information about yeah. what's going on nearby them. So it's a way to just pick them out of that, I guess, and think about them as, you know, often as like sculptural forms, really. Yeah. Um, because it's very different. It's very difficult, sorry, to just shut everything else out and, and get into that state of mind when you're here. Um, yeah, I think your drawings really do 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 that. They they kind of, they really make these things look like sculptures. Maybe just because they're simply in a white, they look like they're in a white cube space. But that's the, you know, that's the visual language of sculptors' yeah. drawings yeah. again, though, isn't it? You know, that's, yeah. that's that context. But... Um, yeah, I've been working with some really good people who've, you know, helped me set up some light sensors, for example. But yeah, the work with Manoli, um, who, like I said, I met several years ago at um, 
I don't know if I did say this actually, but met several years ago on the Manchester International Festival, like Creative 50 scheme. Oh yeah. Um, that's like a, like a proper full on collaboration. Um, and it's been really, really useful experience actually. Um, Manoli has like all this technological know-how. He's a trained composer and he's also like PhD interested in, you know, models of collaboration. So like the most ideal person I could possibly think of. And we've been wanting to, to collaborate for, for ages and we've just, neither of us have really been in the, the right uh, situation or state of mind to do that. But um, so that, you know, there's him and then there's on the flip side, I'm kind of conditioned to treat information like, you know, solid material, like a pretty sculptor. Um, so I've brought that kind of like minimal interference approach to working with sound, I guess. Um, and also, you know, along with a reasonably comprehensive knowledge of the systems we've recorded. Um, but yeah, we've, we've both written about the work and experience of making it separately, this, this audio work. Um, and, you know, from, from our individual perspectives, and that will again be available, I think, on the Castlefield Gallery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You'll, people will be able to, to read yeah. more into that. Um, um, and it's been, it's been, like equally as interesting to, to do that, you know, the process of writing about it and reviewing each other's writing as making the work. Yeah. Um, because it's really like, it, it's a discussion about the language and the kind of language we would use from our own sort of individual contexts. Manoli's like a real academic, you know? Yeah. Um, and you know, what language would use to describe the same thing, plus then the language of manufacturing processes um, and sort of figuring out, you know, what what that overlap and differences and the balance of all that is um, has been like super challenging, but super interesting and enjoyable. Like it's, it's been a lot of back and forth, but, but I mean, again, like outside of all that, the, you know, the project, if, if we're talking about participation or collaboration, like the project completely relies on the people that work at Ritherden. Like if, you know, if the aim is, my general aim is to make something new or different happen then the sort of existing systems have to be, you know, operating anyway. And the, the people in that system have to be willing to, you know, accommodate my suggestions, basically. So, you know, I suppose really that means that all the work is sort of partly designed by those people um, because, you know, I'm relying on the intimate knowledge of, of those processes to make those changes happen. There's an article that Lauren Velvet wrote for Corridor 8 about the project as well, isn't there? And in, in that she mentions um, a, a kind of, uh, I'm not sure how to put it, an interaction with you and one of the guys in, in, the, in the factory where you were asking um, him to make something with you or something. And he said, if you ask me to make something, I'll make you a box. Yeah. yeah. That was his response because that's what, what, he, what he sees is, is what he does. Um, and if you want to say a little bit about that. Yeah, so that, that was Andy, one of the welders, man. Um, yeah, it was good. That was, I think that was actually on the first day of the, the art and manufacturing residency. Um, and, you know, sometimes ideas for the work, very often they come from one-to-one -one interactions from people because, you know, first of all, they know what goes on here and are experts in those processes. But also I do have, I, I certainly feel now like, you know, I know everybody very well. And the, that sort of honoured in the making of the work, I think. But, but yeah, Andy said, you know, what are you going to make? And I said, well, I don't really know yet. It's like, you know, first day I'll, I'll have a bit of a think. And he was like, oh, God, don't ask me to make anything. Like, you'll end up with a box. So I was like, all right, then, mate, we'll do that then. <laughs> so, 
So we did actually make some boxes, but it was um, it was out of the leftover punch sheets from the, the yeah. Trump punch. So they were kind of like the negative space left behind from, from the boxes. But um, I do think that, you know, if we're thinking about relationships with the people here, I think, you know, I got to know everyone really well during the initial art and manufacturing residency because it was like a pretty intense 10 weeks <laughs> and we got a lot done. Um, and also if, you know, if the general consensus was that I was in the way or anything like that, like I wouldn't have been able to come back. Um, yeah. Because, you know, everyone here is, is generous, but also there is a job to be done. Um, <clears throat> but I think, you know, the lads in the paint shop, they, you know, they're just ongoing consent now to film them while they're doing their job. And I think that's a testament to, you know, the fact that we do get on, maybe that, you know, that they're interested in what I'm doing as well. And, and but also I know exactly where I stand with everyone here. You know, if something isn't possible, I'm told if, you know, if something I want to do is fine, then I trust that that's the case. And like communication is good. It's this 5S thing again. And it's, it's just so much easier to navigate things here than the art world, for example. <laughs> you know, there, there are procedures here. It's very straightforward and good. Um, but on the social side, like, you know, Withered and have a ride out every year where the factory closes for a day and everyone gets paid to go out on a day together. Um, so, you know, I've been invited to those and the Christmas dues as well, where we've enjoyed a few shandies together. Dot, dot, dot. And, you know, again, like I've been involved in the heritage days and, and stuff like that. So I, I do feel very much like I'm part of the community. So. I mean, something that we've been talking about at the gallery for a while, and I, you know, I've seen some other people talking about and other artists, and I think it will probably be quite a, a genuine part of, of conversation and dialogue in the world in general, but particularly in the mm -hmm. art world, is kind of talking about friendship or like to quote Donna Haraway, you know, kind of kinship um, mm -hmm. and, you know, how we find ways to kind of reach out to different worlds and different people and learn from mm -hmm. them. And, you know, mm -hmm. I think in our programme coming up in the next year or two, we, we were kind of, kind of finding ways to, to focus in on that side of things, what we're doing, whether it's old people and young people or people from different parts of society or, and I think like, you know, talking about this sort of back to the death drive thing of, of pushing these materials into this limbo weird art world, you know, there's maybe another step that comes after that where we then, or, 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 or realise that it was, you know, already the same world, already overlapping and connected in some way. Mm -hmm. And how in how we, you know, and I think the exhibition at Castlefield Gallery, um, you know, we've been talking, you know, you've been driving very much this kind of how to connect these mm -hmm. worlds and how to present uh, not just something that's been made somewhere else and then transported from that place into the gallery but that, that has a connection still with that place and yeah. still is still alive you know um so i don't know if you want to say a little bit about that i mean you mentioned the um the light the light sensor piece i don't know whether that's um you're able to talk about that much yet or or not yeah well i mean i can you know it, it's sort of in the prototype phase so you know which everything is still all always becoming like you say my friend it's always becoming. <laughs> nothing is finished yet um but yeah you know i can say a little bit about that but i think i mentioned before like you know the idea of um 
just representing or presenting data that's collected in a different format, basically. Um, and the light sensor work is this kind of, I consider it, it is, a, it is a thing that joins two worlds, but it is also a celebration of the individual fabricator. Um, it is, so the set of it, so, sorry, cut my teeth in. The setup of it is, um, there's a, something that detects uh, welding flash in the booth. Uh, and each, ultimately, each, each craftsperson, each fabricator will have their own rhythm of doing, you know, a set of 10 of the same products. That's just how it is because it is repetitive. They're different. We've, you know, I've said this, but it is repetitive work. And ultimately, you know, you get, it's your own language of making there with your body. Um, and it's a way to, the sensor detects this sort of the flashing of the weld, uh, pings it up to the cloud and then operates um, a rig of lighting at a, a remote location. So the gallery, for example, um, and then the lights sort of flash according to when the welder is welding. Um, and I want to say it's not like voyeuristic, <laughs> but it is, you know, it's, it's a bit more of a celebration of, yes, you're witnessing somebody working in real time. You can't see them, but you, you're able to detect like their own personal working rhythm um, because of that. So there is like a live link, I guess. Yeah. Does that make sense? I'm, yeah, I still yeah. need to practice talking about it, I guess, but <laughs> it's difficult well, when it's not totally done yet. But we've got time. You know, I'll put the idea out there. There you go. Mm. So um, I just want to give a kind of a quick shout out to, you know, there's a lot of people who are supporting the show um, and, mm. you know, it's going to be, yeah, quite a big thing. We're really looking forward to it. So I just wanted to say a quick thank you to Chris Klingenberg, one of our um, commissioning patrons at the gallery, and also the Ronnie Duncan Art Foundation, who, who are supporting this show in particular, uh, but also all of our kind of patron supporters, Arts Council, City Council funders, and so on. Um, and just people listening to this, come and see the show, you know, come and see it. Uh, and if you are able to go, go and visit the factory and, you know, it's going to, it's going to be, yeah, it's going to be a good show. Um, I think we've been talking for, uh, I think probably about an hour now. So, and, before I invite you to just maybe talk a little bit about what, what you've got coming up, is there anything else you want to just add? Um, mm. relates to what we've been talking about. I think, I think maybe that's it for now. I'm just still, to be honest, there's so much information that's still sloshing about that, you know, hopefully most of that was coherent still. And <laughs> so that's all good. Thank you. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, I know um, you maybe wanted to mention you're, you're kind of at the beginning of working with Paralab, Manchester University. Mm -hmm. um, and also I just wanted to say, is anything... Um, you've got coming up in the future you know what's what's next for nicola ellis i mean after after mm -hmm. the show in the, in the, in the future mm -hmm. so yeah i will i will say a little bit about paralab actually um so paralab is um they, you know paralab has a, a tagline as well um which is the what of art and science and the how of cooperation between artists and scientists and essentially we're a group of artists and scientists, material scientists and chemists to be more precise about that. Um, and we were brought together by uh, Annie Carpenter um, and Andrew Wilson um, to, to meet regularly in our studios and more recently at Manchester University Labs and sort of university 
facilities um, to discuss, you know, how um, and what we do as individuals, like how we might collaborate and what the outcomes of that collaboration might be. Um, and we've now sort of split off into different working groups and just before the lockdown, Andrew and I were sort of attending Friday morning meetings about, you know, research uh, PhD and postdoc students are, are working on emulation to super alloys. So metals again, total nerd. Um, and usually this would kind of just be to other researchers in the department, but um, we're invited, um, first of all, because we're interested, but also like secondly, I'm told it's useful for scientists to be able to articulate what they're doing to people outside of their own specialism. Mm. Um, so that's our function. Um, but yeah, we're sort of at the beginning of visiting different facilities to see if there was, you know, the potential for us to make some work in there maybe in collaboration with um, the people that work in those facilities. Um, and listen to this, right? We visited a department with a, a number of robotic welding arms. <laughs> so nerd alert uh, so anyway you can imagine how overwhelmingly exciting that was um but hopefully you know we can pick up with where we left off after um after the the covid business has calmed down a little bit mm. um, but the sort of parallel activity is is like extremely useful to um the, the process of unpicking the, the return to Witherden project for me and i think as is you know, like my ongoing relationship with the incidental unit um, they both create these kind of uh, external reference points, I think is the best way to describe them, with, you know, with people who are involved in similar activity. Um, with, and that kind of validates my work. At, I feel like it validates my work at Witherden a bit. You know, I have this kind of very specific lived experience of being on an artist placement here. And now it's like possible to contribute that to another situation, um, which feels really good. You know, and part of the collaboration business, I think, or artist placement business or art making in general, like, I feel like part of it cannot be rationalised. And sometimes, like, the only way forward is to trust your gut. So it's, it's nice to be spending time with people who are also, you know, experiencing that too, I guess. Um, so what was the next question? What is next? Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> if, if there is anything else, I mean, what more could you be doing? You seem yeah, well, pretty yeah. Hard already. yeah. Um, I don't know that this must be like high up on the most dreaded of all questions for an artist at this time, isn't it? Because like, who knows what the hell are any of us will be doing next year? Um, but there were deadlines for this year, which have now been shifted. So you know, uh, there will hopefully COVID permitting be an exhibition at Castlefield Gallery, as we've discussed. Yes. Um, Paralab work will continue and that's going to be like another long and slow process which is yeah. by me um, and comprehensive hopefully but we're also working towards like a, a public presentation or launch type thing of that work in April I don't know where yet but that's hopefully going to happen um, and there are well there certainly were like other outlets for the return to Witherden work but things are now like less concrete than ever so I can't now really say for fear of it yeah. all happening again yeah, certainly. Yeah. Well, we'll we'll help share, you know, share anything that gets confirmed as and when. Thank so you. So people can kind of yeah, find out about it. Um, wow. Thank you very much, Nick. I think that that was great. Um, if anyone wants to find out more, as we said, there's there's other um, materials on the same web page that you'll found this podcast, um, and come and see us in March, where there'll be you know, uh, un 
previously unseen work, quite large scale works. There's all kinds of different kind of mediums going on. I can't really say loads of details yet, but uh, it's going to be a momentous show. Um, and yeah, come check it out. What else what more can we say? Thank you, Nick. Um, yes, thank well, you. Uh, I'll see you soon, one way or another, I'm sure. Take care. <laughs> see you later. Thank you. Bye.